Welcome to the Rock Christian Church Podcast. Today's message is Slumdog Millionaires by Pastor Sean Wood. If you have your Bibles, you'd like to meet me at Romans chapter 9. Um, this morning I want to talk about uh, Slumdog Millionaires in, in some respects. Most people will know the movie, but I want to talk about the real rags to riches story this morning. Uh, we're going to recap where we were in Romans 9 last time in a moment, but... Uh, I was actually going to finish this chapter today, but uh, as I started pouring over what's here, I said, Lord, we just can't, we just can't keep, we'll breeze through too quickly and we'll miss the importance. When I read the verses, we're going to cover about four or five verses today. When I read these verses, I began to understand that there's a message here that's very, very powerful. Uh, I appreciate Paul's words in Romans chapter 12. Who knows the first two verses? They are, they are my favourite verses in the whole of the Bible. In the first two verses, we read things like, be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind. Paul will go on and say, not only to be transformed, not only to have your mind renewed, but but he'll say, you know what, you should conduct your life as a living sacrifice. Little did he know that by this time, we're we're too prone to jumping on and off, aren't we? Because we're alive, we jump on and off that altar all too often. but, But Paul's plea begins, and I believe the driver the motivator, the fuel that will drive us to live that kind of life is what he appeals to at the start of those verses. Paul says, I beseech you, or I appeal to you, or it's a, in the Greek, there's a very strong emphasis. He's pleading and begging with his readers. I, I beg you by the mercies of God. He makes his appeal. He says, you know what? I want you guys to live like a living sacrifice. I want you to give your life fully over to Christ. I, I, want, you, I want your mind to be renewed and for you to be transformed. But the driver, the, the, the big part of that is mercy. Now, Rick Warren, I, I, was, I was touched. I, I, I appreciate Rick Warren, by the way. Pastor Rick Warren from Saddleback. Uh, I appreciate all that he has to say, but... Rick says, you know, I have a lot of people that I've counseled that have said, you know what, the fires have grown cold and, and I struggle in my Christian walk. He said, I've counseled many people over many years that are in that space. And he says, often we have all these kinds of remedies and programs. He says, but if you can boil it down to one thing. He says, we have lost, and I believe he's correct, that the people of God have lost a deep revelation of the love of God. He said, if, you, if we for a moment could grasp the length and the breadth of God's love, he says, we would drop everything. We would forsake everything. And we would run after him with all that we had. And this morning, um, after last time we spoke in Romans 9, it might sound like I'm trying to defend God, but I'm not going to defend him because I don't need to. My hope today is to just pull the curtain back and allow you to see a part of who God is this morning. Uh, Last time in Romans 9, we we began to look at the fact that it's Genesis 1, the book of Revelations, and Romans 9 are three of the most hotly contested parts of Scripture. Romans 9 because they're of those that propose theistic determinism. 
Now, don't throw John Calvin out the window. Please don't throw him out the window. He was a wonderful expositor of Scripture and we have much we can glean from him. A man that was dedicated to exposing the Word of God. He was kicked out of village after village after village. At one place, John Calvin was kicked out of. And after 12 months, they went, you know what? We got it wrong, John. We'd like you to come back. And he picked up at the very verse where he left off. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 1. He said, open your Bibles to where we finished. And off he went. A wonderful expositor of Scripture. But when it comes to theistic determinism, I would disagree. Because there are those that would say that God's sovereignty means that he absolutely controls every little thing and, and, and every, every sin we make and everything we do is all controlled by God. I don't believe that's the, the, the picture that Scripture paints at all. And I also don't believe that Scripture paints a picture of God playing catch up with man. Some people would say, well, I found God and I sought God and we will soon see that God found us. Now, Paul says... Uh, to be found of God in Galatians. God found me. God reached out to me. But the beautiful harmony is we responded. And when it comes to God's sovereignty and man's responsibility, I want to kind of ask a question that sometimes helps with this. Brother Terry, who wrote the book of Romans? Is that your final answer? You're right, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> You're right, but only halfway. Brother Rob, who wrote the book of Romans? God. All scripture is God-breathed. Oh, okay. But who picked up the pen, Terry? Paul. Just in the book of Romans, what do we see? The absolute sovereignty of God and man's responsibility doing this. In fact, you can't separate them. They work together so beautifully. We see that we are responsible. We're going to deal with that question next week because some people are going to say, well, hang on a second. If God is so sovereign as everybody says he is, how can he find fault with us? How can, how can we stand and be judged by God when apparently he causes everything? Well, great question. We'll answer that one next week. But this week, I want to answer this question that Paul asks. Verse 14, he says, What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? Why would Paul ask that question? It's rhetorical. Paul's going to answer his own questions. He had a habit of talking to himself. He's a little bit crazy. It's only when you answer yourself. Well, Paul was answering himself. That's the problem, right? But what we find is he's asking that question because as we saw a couple of weeks ago, the the Jews thought, you know what? Why should we believe in Jesus? We had a covenant with God. We've got all these promises of God here and now God's abandoned us and brought this Jesus on the scene. Uh, Why should we place our faith in this God anyway? Well, great question. But what Paul wanted the Jews to know was, you know what? God hasn't forgotten you. God hasn't abandoned you. And God hasn't abolished the old covenant. (laughs) He's fulfilled it. And they couldn't see it. And Paul was pleading with them. You guys can't see this. You haven't been cast aside. And he goes on to say that a relationship with God, he says, the promises are for Israel, but for the real Israel. And we began to realise that being in a relationship with God is about so much more than who your parents are. Uh, Being in a relationship with God is so much more than about ceremonies and and turning up the temple every week and the clothes that you wear and the size of your phylactery. There's the word for December, phylactery. I'm going to stop reading the dictionary. 
But Paul goes on and says, he says, God's choice, God's preference is in the promise and in his glory and in his grace. Starts with Isaac. He says, you know what? He says, have a look at Isaac and Ishmael. Both are children of Abraham, but it is through Isaac that I will establish Israel. Why? Because he's the child of promise, whereas Ishmael is the child of man's efforts. Okay. But in case you didn't get it, we'll go on to the one that really confronts everybody. Now he's going to say about Jacob and Esau, twins, born at the same time, kind of. Except Esau was born first and he says, you know what? These two, Jacob and Esau, before they were born, before they did anything good, bad or indifferent, God says, the older will serve the younger. I will form my covenant with Jacob. What's he saying? He's saying, my preference is for my mercy, my love, my blessing goes to not man's efforts, but to my efforts, to my glory. And he finishes with, verse 13 finishes, as it is written, Jacob I've loved, but Esau I've hated. Wow. Hang on a second. That sounds a bit like contradictory to God. That's why Paul's going to ask this question. Well, we unpack what hate means when Jesus gave us the translation. Jesus says in the New Testament that any that would come after me, if anybody would follow me, he says, they must hate their father or mother, their brothers and their sisters. They must even hate their very own life if they're going to come after me. What's Jesus saying? This isn't about hating anybody. This is about preferring Jesus over everything else. In fact, Jesus says, if you're going to follow me, you have to prefer me over your own very self. And so the message between Jacob and Esau isn't about rejecting anybody. It's about preferring Jacob because that's where God's blessing is. I love the lady that approached C.H. Spurgeon and said, Mr. Spurgeon, I just can't understand how God could reject Esau. (laughs) Spurgeon, in his usual abrupt manner, says, lady, that's not my trouble. My trouble is to understand how God could love Jacob. So based on that, Paul asks a question. He says, what shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? Now, if that question has arisen in your hearts, if that question has arisen in your minds, then join probably everybody else that's read these passages of Scripture. Hang on a second. Isn't God unjust here? Isn't it unfair for God? Because everybody's focused on Esau, by the way. Just as an FYI, just as a digression, Esau was amazingly blessed. Jacob lived in tents. Esau had his own land. Esau didn't miss out. He was enormously blessed. Edom is later on judged. The nation of Edom is later on judged. But we're never told anything, by the way, in Scripture. We are never told one way or the other about the eternal destiny of Esau. Why? Because that's not what the problem is. That's not what God's trying to highlight here. But if we're honest with ourselves, these questions bubble up in our hearts. Well, hang on a second. What about Esau? Isn't it unfair? I want to propose to you this morning that the message is completely, the question is completely and utterly misconceived. Who's watched the movie Slumdog Millionaire, by the way? Great movie. Uh, It's a real rags to riches movie. 2008, Slumdog Millionaire comes out. It's about a a young guy uh, and two others, by the way, that grow up in the slums of Mumbai and they they go from uh, obscene 
poverty and he goes to being a millionaire. He enters, I want to be a millionaire, India's version of that. He enters that to try and get the attention of a girl that he's lost contact with that he grew up in the slums with. But, but the message is a real rags to riches message. And this morning, I want to unpack uh, the reality. What Paul is going to do now, as he pulls the curtain back on this whole injustice question, is in defense of God, he's just going to pull back the curtain and allow us to see what the reality of this is. That's God's mercy. The question's completely and utterly misconceived, and I'll tell you why. Uh, justice means that somebody is obligated. You can only cry unfair if somebody has not done what they were obligated to do. Question I have for everybody here this morning as we move our way through these passages. Is God obligated to save anybody? Then how can we cry unfair? The tragedy is we may miss the glorious, profound truth that rests in what Paul's trying to tell us here. Let's read on. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means, says Paul. For he says to Moses, and we'll get to the context of this one in a moment, but have a listen to this for a verse. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. Mercy basically means, it's it's an unobligated uh, outward action of sympathy. Let me give you an example of why injustice is, is not really part of the question here. Imagine for a moment there are 10,000 children in the slums of India. Let's, most of us here have seen movies or whatever that kind of paint a picture of maybe what the slums of Mumbai would look like. Cast your mind to 10,000 children that are in the slums of Mumbai right now. Now imagine an enormously wealthy philanthropist. And there's another dictionary word that I've got to stop reading. Philanthropist. Who's enormously wealthy and he decides or she decides, I'm going to go and rescue 1,000 of those children out of the slums and I'm going to bring them into my house and they're going to eat at my table and I'm going to dress them in the finest clothes. Problem is, many people say that's unfair on the other 9,000. When in fact, we've missed the merciful act because the philanthropist didn't have to save any of them at all. Now, before you start throwing tomatoes, and I know you probably brought some, Terry, but before you start throwing tomatoes, the, the Christian message, the gospel message is this, and we're going to unpack it as we move our way through. God does to us exactly what that philanthropist does to those 1,000 children. He takes us into his house. He dresses us in the finest garments, the garments of righteousness that Jesus has provided. He lays a banqueting table before us, the psalmist says, and we eat at the table of the king. He does that all for one purpose, so that we will run out into the slums of Mumbai and invite the other 9,000 children to come and eat 
at the table of the king. Mercy must assume two things. The first one is absolute need of the recipient and also the abundant adequacy of the one who is giving. All too often, the sad truth is that all too often too many Christians have been invited into the house of God but choose to run out and eat on the streets. And the gospel message is not a gospel where God comes to us in the slums of Mumbai, so to speak, and gives us a bowl of food and a new set of clothes and says, I hope you enjoy your life here. No, no, no. God delivers us out. The message of the gospel is not that God came to make your life better here. He came to deliver you out of the world. He came to give you a hope that is beyond this world. He came to give you a future that is beyond this world and he sets his love and affection on you as a message for the rest of the world. Remember Lance Armstrong from a couple of weeks ago? For those that weren't here, as a bit of a recap, we we covered what the word means, God's purpose in election. What does that mean? What does election mean? Well, election means that I draw somebody out or I choose somebody. Remember the gym class when all the nerdy kids got picked last? It's that kind of choosing. And Lance Armstrong, everybody knew that Lance Armstrong was a drug cheat. Everybody suspected that the seven yellow jerseys he had hanging on his wall from winning the Tour de France was because he had doped himself up to the eyeballs. And, of course, it all broke and he was, he was exposed for the fraud that he is. And when he's on Oprah Winfrey, Oprah Winfrey says, so the world says you're a cheat, Lance. What do you say? And he says, he says, everything that I'm accused of, he says, I've done. He says, but I'm not a cheat. And I appreciated that. He says, because cheat means that you deliberately gain an unfair advantage against your opponent. He says, we were all doped up to the eyeballs. But Usada had a problem. We've got a culture of drugs and we need to deal with it. How did they deal with it? Do you know every other person that was charged with doping, because many of them ended up putting their hand up, every other single one of them got six months suspension from competition. Lance Armstrong got a lifetime ban from competing in any sport. Because the minute they said you can't cycle, he said, I'll start running. I don't care. I just want to compete. They said you can't compete at competition level in any sport again. And what they did was they drew Lance Armstrong out. Of all the drug cheats in the cycling world, they elected Lance Armstrong and they did something. They made an example of him to send a message to everybody else. And what God does is he makes an example of you to send a message to everybody else. I appreciate uh, at the ladies and the men's events. We had a, a men's event yesterday. I appreciate that we share testimonies about what God has done in our life. Why is that? Because the greatest work of God, God you know what God did? You know, God wrote the Bible. God sent prophets. God's word, Hebrews says, come in many different ways. God's trying to communicate his message to us. I want you. I want you to be with me. There's, I want you to come back into, and be reunited with me. But nobody's getting the message. So he says, you know what I'll do? I'll grab this bunch here and I'll pour out my love and affection on them so that everybody gets it. And every month we have men stand up and say, this is what it looked like for me. God took me from the slums of Milieu, this slum dog Milieu. He said, God took me from the slums of Mumbai and brought me into his house and I eat at the banqueting table and everybody else goes, I want that. That's why we have testimonies. Because God says, I need you to go and tell everybody else because they're not getting the message. You have a look at the life of Abraham. 
towards the end of Abraham's life, everybody around him, he was a sojourner. He had no land, no home, lived in tents. Everybody around him came and said, you know what? We want to make a covenant with you, man, because we know that God's with you. Because you're living a testimony. We want to make... Because these kings had more armies, everything, but they said, we want to make a covenant with you because we know that whoever's on your side is supernatural. Does your life proclaim that? The truth of the matter is, God didn't have to save anybody in this room. God didn't have to send Jesus. Jesus didn't have to walk the road to the cross. God was not obligated at all. Anytime your theology, your the- anytime your theology about God, anytime your theology about salvation, anytime your theology about faith places God under obligation, your theology is wrong. God's not obligated to do anything. And if you want to know what it is that God's going to do next, I have the answer for you this morning. Whatever he pleases. Because he spoke the universe into existence and he'll do what he wants, when he wants, why he wants, how he wants. This is what I know. He is good and all his ways are just. The message of mercy and salvation is how we are completely inadequate to meet our own need. But the message of Jesus Christ is how adequate he is to meet our need. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. And the context of that is Exodus chapter 33, 32, chapter 32, the Israelites and the golden calf, they dance, Aaron dancing around the calf. God wants to wipe them out, man. God's like, God says to Moses, he says, I've had enough of these guys. I'm going to wipe them out. And Moses sticks up for them, right? But Moses goes on, he's up the mountain with God, and Moses says, show me your glory. What does God answer him? God says, I will let my goodness pass before you. And then he says, for I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. Do you know, mercy is not something God does. It's, a, it's an intrinsic part of who he is. God behaves this way towards us. Why? Not because he does mercy, because he is merciful. Because he is love. What's God revealing to Moses? I'm telling you a part of who I am. I'm not showing you what I do. I'm, not show- I'm showing you who I am. And when we grab hold of grace, when we grab hold of mercy, it is the fuel that compels the Christian life. And it's been distorted today. Paul says in Romans chapter 6, he says, shall we go on sinning that grace may increase? No. Why? Because people have distorted grace. There are books today. There are pulpits today where grace sounds like, uh, because you're in Christ now, um, uh, that unrighteous affair that you've just had is now a righteous act because where your sin increases, God's grace increases. What? Let me tell you, there's not a spare seat in that church. But grace is not licensed to do what you want. It is the fuel to do what God wants. Uh, The power of grace and mercy is this. The power of mercy and the power of grace changes our have-tos to I want to. And Paul says, if you can't stand and say, God, I want you, you don't get grace. You don't get mercy. You don't get how this God who was completely unobligated to move on your behalf at all 
chose to. I know your testimony is the same because I've heard many testimonies in this place. My testimony is this. God chose to lovingly and mercifully intervene in my life and bring me to himself. He revealed himself to me. I make many mistakes. I know you just can't believe that right now. (laughs) Don't ask my wife for confirmation. (laughs) And don't, don't turn up on Tuesdays. I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. I'll have compassion on whom I have compassion. Verse 16. I love this verse. This is what we need to get about mercy. So that it depends not on human will or exertion. The, the original Greek there says it does not depend on him who runs or wills. It's not based on what you do. It's not based on your efforts. It's not based on your will. But it is based on God. So that it doesn't depend on human will or exertion, but on God who has Mercy, blessed be his glorious name this morning. Verse 17, but we're going to deal with the Esau part of things here. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, I love how Paul uses a story that everybody would know. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up. That sentence there sounds exactly like this in the Hebrew, which is where this is quoted from. For this very reason, I have brought you onto the stage of history, Pharaoh. Why? The reason that God brings Pharaoh onto the stage of history is the very same reason that Oprah Winfrey and Brad Pitt looked into the the depths of the Bible and said, once I read the Bible, I walked away from Christianity. Why is that? Because the Bible's full of a megalomaniac God that, in their words, that is consumed with his own glory. (laughs) Amen. And we want to see more and more of it. Everything is about his glory. Everything he does in your life is about exemplifying his glory. Everything he does in the world is about exemplifying his glory. If you want to see God's glory, spend five minutes out in nature. If you want to see the real riches of God's glory, take a trip to Tassie. God created the heavens and the earth, but he started with Tassie. And moved Queensland too close to the sun. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I've raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Verse 18, let's finish this off. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. We make a mistake when we read that verse, though. And the mistake is we think that God comes to Pharaoh, this poor, innocent little dude, and absolutely hardens this guy and then blows him to pieces. Here's a question when we're dealing with Pharaoh that I want to answer, help you answer today is, when it comes to Pharaoh, how much work do you think God had to put in to harden him? In fact, how much work sometimes does God have to put in to harden us? To be hardened is to make spiritually insensitive. And here's the actual truth of the story of Pharaoh. Here's what Scripture actually records. Uh, The Scripture does say God hardened Pharaoh. Oh, but not until chapter 9 of Exodus. What we read in chapter 7 and chapter 8 is that Pharaoh hardened himself. 
miracle after miracle after miracle after miracle, and he hardens himself. Let's fast forward to the time of Jesus. We get some fancy-looking dudes with long beards and beautiful robes, phylacteries out here. Jesus comes and does miracle after miracle after miracle after miracle after miracle, right up until the point until the point where a guy has been dead for four days. And Jesus raises that man from the dead, Lazarus. There is a tomb today that has an inscription at the top that says, here lies Lazarus, twice dead. It's a point of history. And their reaction to Lazarus being raised from the dead is, what are we going to do to knock this guy off? And by the way, we better knock off Lazarus too. Because you can't shut him up and he's telling everybody and everybody wants to follow Jesus. It's the reason when Jesus comes into the city on a donkey, they lay out palms in front of him because word had got around that Lazarus had walked out of the grave. Wow. What's the reaction of everybody in church? Well, the Pharisees. What's the reaction of all the religious people in church? Let's kill this guy because he threatens our way of life. Or, in their words, if we don't do something about Jesus, the Romans will come and take away all of our authority. That's hard. That's spiritually insensitive. Think what you like of Rodney Howard Brown, and he's a little bit of a loose cannon, I get that. But I did appreciate some words at one of the meetings I was at one time when in a pretty big stadium in South Australia. And place was packed, and he said, you know what, the truth of the matter is that God could come down here tonight. He says, lift the roof off this stadium, suspend it two metres in the air, and gently put it back. He said, there's people in this room tonight that would say the bolts weren't done up tight enough. That's called hard. It's called spiritually insensitive. What happens with Pharaoh is, how do we come to this scripture and understand this then? So that he has mercy on whom he wills. Okay, we kind of get that, Pastor. We understand that God comes to us and, and absolutely pours out his mercy on us, even though he's not obligated. But how do we deal with this hardening? That sounds like God says some can be saved and, and others can't. That's not what it says at all. Romans chapter 1 tells us exactly what happens with uh, Pharaoh anyway. In Romans 1.24, scariest four words you'll read in Romans was God gave them over. Romans chapter 1, starting at verse 18, goes on to tell us about how they had exchanged the glory of God and worshipped images. How mankind had gone off in all kinds of wickedness and evil and deceit, leaving the natural relations. that's, That's a message for another day. He says, God gave them over to the lust of their flesh. What's, what's that mean? God has released his hands and says, you can have the consequences of your actions. Pharaoh, time and again, I've shown you my glory. You have it your way. As I bring this to a close... I'm reminded of the words C.S. Lewis wrote that helped me enormously on this subject because uh, what an apologist he was, by the way. What, What an absolute defender of the faith he was. And he says, you know what? When it comes to eternal separation from God, he says, the gates of hell 
will be locked on the inside. What does that mean? It means that after a lifetime of God pleading with everybody, there will be many people that God says, I'm going to honour your choice. The message of Israel, the warnings that come to us from Israel is, you can have the presence of God like a pillar of cloud, Brother Rob, by day. A pillar of fire by night. You can have the very presence of God in your camp and be crying out to Moses that you want to go back to Egypt because at least you had leeks and garlic when you were back in Egypt. My prayer today is that we would come to a deeper revelation of God's mercy. And that that would compel us deeper into a relationship with him. Ever ever asked yourself the question, why put the tree in the garden? Ever asked that question? Yeah. You know what, God, if you knew we were going to mess it up, he knew. God, if you knew we were going to mess it up, he knew because Jesus' blood was shed before the foundation of the world. That's a profound, profound verse, by the way. If you knew we were going to mess it up, if you knew sin was going to come, if you knew all this was going to happen, why did you even put the tree in the garden? Because the minute God put the tree in the garden, trees metaphorically is still there, by the way, the minute the tree was put in the garden, we all had a choice. That was one tree in an entire garden. But... And what choice does is it expands the parameters of love because now a relationship with God is by choice on his part. That's what mercy is. Mercy says you don't deserve it. Mercy says I shouldn't reach out to you. Mercy says no matter what you've done, I value you because of who you are and I'm I'm going to do everything I can to reach out to you. But God didn't come to create robots. So now we have a choice. And a love relationship is defined by choice. And everybody in this room has a choice. Every morning you open your eyes, God willing, you have to make this choice. God, today you're so much more valuable than everything else. Let us pray. This morning we're going to sing a song of worship and if you need prayer, the altar's open. We'd love to pray with you, but can we all just bow our heads in his presence this morning? Father, I pray that you would peel the curtain back and let us see a greater revelation of who you are today. Thank you, Father God. We just... We just We don't have any other English words except for thank you. That even though you were not obligated, you reached out to every single one of us. You opened our blind eyes. You broke the chains from off our hearts. And I pray, Lord God, that each and every one of us would get that in this place today. 
Thanks for listening to the Rock Christian Church Podcast. To be notified when the next episode is available, subscribe on our website at therock.org.au. You can also connect with us on Facebook at The Rock Christian Church. We hope you have been blessed today and we look forward to you joining us for our next episode.